Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Whoa! Duvall Nation, thank you everyone in our cyber audience for that amazing welcome. You truly know how to humble this little talk show host. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. I am your host, Derek, and I am thrilled to bits that you have decided to tune in for 45 minutes of your life to hear my show. I won't be disappointing you as we have another incredible person as our guest. Okay, before we start, full disclosure, we have had a rough few weeks here at the production studios. The PC that drives the production of the show decided to get fed up and die on us quite unexpectedly. And it has thrown the entire production schedules, interview dates, everything into the shitter. Hence, we have missed last week's release schedule. First time we've ever done that. And we are so sorry. We are using an old iMac to produce this show, as we really don't want to deprive the world of another great episode, another great guest. So, that aside, what's been going on with me? Well, I have been on the hustle, and I am excited to tell you about my partnership with a fantastic company. And we'll be revealing that in our next episode. Also, my musical hero, the great and enigmatic Lindsey Buckingham, has announced a new album and a fall tour, so I got myself a fifth-row center ticket for December. Looks to be an amazing show. If he's coming to a venue near you and you have not had the honor of seeing him, I highly advise you to buy a ticket. Yes, God forbid, yes, he will play. Now they're going back again and go your own way. Believe me, he has better songs than that, but I know how some people can be. So, episode 19, what do we have in store for your listening delight? Well, I have to tell you about the two great films I saw recently, my thoughts on one of my heroes' last shows, and finally, we have an amazing, awesome interview with the author of the book, Life at Hamilton. Sometimes you throw away your shot only to find your story, Mr. Mike Anthony. Yes, that's right, Hamill fans. Lots of great insights and stories from the blockbuster Broadway show. If you are just a passing fan or a hardcore fanatic of Hamilton, then this episode is for you. So, let's not stand on ceremony. Let's just get right on with it. Derek Duvall's favorite things. Okay, so, I have a really guilty pleasure in apocalypse films. Specifically, films that depict the end of the world. Now, during the pandemic, the film Greenland came out. And while I am not an idiot to go to the theater to see it during a hellish time in our world's history, 
the film finally came to HBO Max. And so the other night in the Duval Home Theater, which I really should post a picture of on social media, think 120-inch screen, 4K UHD projector, and Dolby Atmos sound. Sorry, I got sidetracked. Anyways, it came to HBO Max, and I watched it the other night by myself, and it was amazing. Holy f***ing was it intense. You never imagined movies like that doing well critically, but with a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, hey, Gerard Butler deserved a hit after all this time. Sorry, but Planet Earth is Falling was the only next logical step in that saga. And with a great supporting cast, the film gets Derek Duvall's highest seal of approval. With that said, last night, I again tapped into the end of the world genre with a cult classic favorite of mine, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Now, I know this gets shit on a lot by the critics, and I know I get I just praise them for looking upon Greenland so favorably, but this is the one time they truly missed the mark. Not only does this film have only one ending, but it's primed for discussion such as topics like, if you knew there would be an extinction-level event in three weeks and there was not a single thing you could do to stop it, what would you do with those three weeks? I've had great discussions with folks about that, and I tell you, some of their responses warm the heart. Also, fun fact, if you play The Air That I Breathe by The Hollies, you will 100% of the time get Mrs. Duvall to ugly cry. Yes, that scene in the film they used, that song left an imprint on my wife's soul. Like Greenland, I would really like a few more movies set in those universes. But then, that brings me to my next question. The summer of 1998. Yes, who remembers that one, eh? Deep Impact or Armageddon? Forever will those two film titles be enshrined next to each other. You get the realism of Deep Impact, such as the government response to the comments impending impact, the lottery to save lives and preserve some form of humanity. But who needs that shit when you can have a Michael Bayness of Armageddon, including a really creepy scene where Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler are making out to one of her dad's songs. Explosions, insane science, oil riggers, and who would have guessed that John McClane himself would be the man to save the world? But if Harry, I love you, doesn't get the old heartstrings and the waterworks going, then I got nothing for you. But yeah, end of the world by asteroid and or comic movies. I hope they make many more. Trust me, I eat that stuff up. And now, Derek Duvall's thoughts on life. This isn't so much a thought on life, but more of an homage. I want to pay homage to one of my heroes, and that is the legendary Conan O'Brien. As the world knows, Conan has retired as a late-night talk show host this week, and in my opinion, the world is a sadder place. Conan was the last of the old guard, the titans of late night. Now, I do have a spot for Stephen Colbert, but I just feel that Fallon doesn't hold a candle to any of the greats, and we all know how much I feel about James Corden. I have a weird connection to Conan, in a way. I very briefly got to meet him in Tulsa when he was unceremoniously fired from The Tonight Show and decided to do the legally prohibited from being funny on television tour. I know a lot of people who work at the Brady Theater, and I was granted access to meet a few stars. Andy Richter was amazing, and he also loved my Daphne from Scooby-Doo uh, zombie hunter shirt. I met Dion Cole as well. Now, he's a huge fan star now but he wasn't back then but yeah i got to meet Dion cole la bomba he was a great guy i also met reggie watts uh, he opened for conan o'brien on that tour he had me in hysterics the show started and the video of conan looking obese and rocking a homeless man beer was incredible while the song um what was it um all by myself by eric cartman was playing then you had triumph insult comic dog was amazing with the dubbed over um meth lab supplies reason to come to tulsa 
Uh, bumped into Hanson too while I was there. Uh, you see those guys run around Tulsa anyway all the time, but still, it was it's cool. After the show, uh, Conan came out to meet some fans. I shook his hand. I remember saying to him, uh, you'll have the last laugh. And he smiled and said, you aren't kidding, which I thought was hilarious. A year later, I met Mrs. Duvall. And after the engagement and traditional sending of wedding invitations, we thought, what the hell? Let's just send one to Conan O'Brien. And I didn't think anything was going to come of it. A few months later, we got a yellow manila envelope from Burbank Studios. And inside was an 8x10 photograph of Conan. you got to remember, this is Conan rocking the beard, which I think was the coolest thing. Anyway, um, it was a photograph of Conan with the inscription of our names and save me some cake. That's the kind of guy he was, and what a legacy. From SNL to writing one of the funniest Simpsons episodes of all time, to The Late Show, to The Tonight Show, and then, of course, to TBS, The Conan Show. The man is immortalized. And yes, hands down, the old-timey baseball sketch is one of the greatest bits of comedy ever filmed. Late Night will never, ever, ever be the same. So thank you, Conan. Okay, so on that note, let's get right into our guest. Please welcome to the show a very special man, the author of the book, Life at Hamilton. Sometimes you throw away your shot only to find your story, which I am not going to lie, is one of the coolest plays on a song lyric ever. All the way from Connecticut, the man of a hundred tales, Mr. Mike Anthony. (laughs) Michael, good morning. Welcome to the show. How's your morning been so far? It's been great, Derek. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm honored. I start my interviews with the same question, and that is, how has it been for you having to navigate the COVID-19 world? Yeah, it's been a crazy year. I mean, especially for, you know, I work on Broadway, and and we've been shut down completely since last March. So, um, you know, and it was like the world changed instantaneously. I was on my way on the train into work one day when I got the call. Been, you know, surreal been bizarre you know for me i have tried to make the most out of time this is by far the most time i've ever had off in my life uh and it was able to you know i wrote two books during the time off it's uh, you know we see the light at the end of the tunnel now coming back uh, some shows in august and september so uh you know we're, we're gonna get there awesome i that's actually funny you say that about writing a book i've asked that question now what we on 18 times and not one of them has ever said, I wrote a book or I, you know, some of them are like, I learned how to play guitar or, you know, that's, that's, right, a, that's right. an interesting one. I have to admit, you, you're the first person to say that. So, yeah, well, Shakespeare fame, there's a lot of pressure and obviously I'm not any, coming anywhere close to this, but Shakespeare famously wrote King Lear during plague. Mm. So there's, there's precedence. All right. I like that. <laughs> All right. I want to start at the beginning. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, such as, you know, where you're from and what was it like growing up for you? Yeah, I'm from uh, Connecticut, a small town in Connecticut called Guilford. I, growing up here was, you know, I sort of had an idyllic childhood. We lived in a very quiet neighborhood. I lived in a little cul-de-sac, uh, you know, with a couple of friends that lived right on my street. And, you know, I was very very blessed, uh, very, very uh, privileged to have been born in, um, into an incredibly loving family and, uh, and had a childhood that was just full of support. And that allowed me to, you know, really believe that, that I could uh, do whatever I wanted. So at what point in your life did you decide, you know, hey, I've got to move to New York? to pursue acting and was it always to be, you know, Broadway or were you more interested in film or television? 
Uh, it was broad. Yeah. I mean, initially I had acted all through high school and, uh, and then when I got to college though, my in- intention was to be a science teacher, a high school science teacher. So I was studying science for the first, uh, three years of college and minoring in, in acting. Uh, but then I had a, this amazing professor of acting and he said, you know, if, if you're going to do this, you really just have to do it. You just have to go for it. No plan B. And so I, I ended up dropping the major in, uh, in G in earth science geology. And then I, I majored instead in acting and then went to grad school to get an MFA in acting as well and moved to New York. Um, and stage had always been, uh, what I had seen myself doing. So, um, and you know, New York is sort of the, the, it's changing now, now, now film and TV are happening more in, in more places, but it used to be New York was the place for stage and LA was the place for film and TV. Uh, so I headed right to New York. Are there any musicals that you gravitate to just out of curiosity? Um, I mean, in high school, I did Guys and Dolls, which is sort of an old, you know, classic. And I, I fell in love. I played Nathan Detroit, which is the sort of classic character. But, you know, modern, you know, musicals are are changing so much now. Just just sort of the form that they take are, are changing. Uh, thanks so in large part to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who um, is this brilliant writer. And he wrote In the Heights, and of course, Hamilton, which is where I work now. So shows now like Dear Evan Hansen you know, the, the fun home. Um, there are just so many, uh, Broadway has really expanded in, in, in what you can find. There are so many different sorts of shows out there. So I, well, I grew up in Great Britain, obviously. And when I was a young boy, my, my aunts used to take us, you know, from, from one place, take us down to London, go to the West End. We saw uh, Babes in the Woods and we saw, um, I know I saw Phantom of the Opera with uh, Michael Crawford. Um, mm-hmm. many, many, many years ago. I'm trying to remember what year it was, but I know it was, I was a very young boy. You know, hearing that and seeing the stage and the production value and what have you, it inspired me. When I was in school, I, I did The Sound of Music and mm-hmm. I played Captain Von Trapp in, on, as The Sound of Music. I loved it. It was fantastic. And a part of me is always like, why did I give that up? But the other part of me is like, you know, hey, you know, it was a great time in your life, but, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. I, I saw uh, Nathan Detroit do funny thing happened on the way to the forum that was one of my first broadway shows uh and i was like oh my god this is definitely what i what i want to do for for my life <laughs> but um you know it's very hard obviously mm-hmm. the, the, the the level of talent is just incredible um as i see every day now you know i, I work on broadway as a bartender that's my you know my quote-unquote day job so I'm, I'm i've been around broadway now for the last 15 years and the the level of talent is just, you know, absolutely world class. Mm-hmm. Your book, Life at Hamilton, sometimes you throw away your shot only to find your story has been uh, a must have for the collection of any Hamilton fan with you giving a most unique perspective on its success from behind the bar of the R- Richard Rogers Theater. What inspired you to write this fantastic book? Um, well, it, it really uh, happened thanks to the universe. I really feel like I had very little to do with with this book coming to be. I, I, I had I have always shared stories uh, just on Facebook. You know, as I said, I've worked on Broadway for 15 years now, and you know, I've, I've experienced so many you know fun and, and interesting things over that time. And I would often just write stories on my way home. I, I, I moved back to Connecticut about five years ago. So, you know, it's an hour and a half train ride. And on the train at, at night, I would just tap out a little story about what happened that day on my 
uh, in the notes app on my phone and then share it on Facebook, um, you know, for my mom, basically, my mom and my siblings and, and friends and family to see. Um, however, my I was not paying attention to the privacy settings at all on Facebook and uh, everything was set to public. So as I started sharing stories, particularly about things that were happening at Hamilton, um, some of the stories began to get shared way, way beyond my my small circle of family and friends. And um, a couple of them went, you know, sort of viral uh, where hundreds of thousands of people were, were, were seeing them. And because of that, a, uh, a bit of a, a following, a, a sort of a support group almost grew up around my uh, Facebook page and these stories. And um, it was the community of people that were reading the stories that suggested they be collected into a book. And one of the, one of those people happened to be an author. She was, she's a New York times bestselling author, Stephanie Good. And she said, listen, I, you know, I'd like to take these stories to my agent uh, you know, uh, see see what he thinks about getting these published in, in, in a book. And uh, so that's really was the genesis. That That's how it started with some angelic people coming into my life and, and really making it happen. The reviews have been stellar. There's, I mean, there's no argument there. Uh, <laughs> were you surprised with how well the book has been received? Oh, my God, completely surprised. I mean, I, you know, I, I think of my writing, again, as very simple. You know, I, I tell the stories in, in very simple terms and and the, the stories are published largely as written uh, on the train those nights you know and i was not thinking obviously about these being read by a wider audience i was not paying very close attention to to word choice to, to grammar to where the commas should be and things of that nature i was very not only surprised when when she wanted to take these to her agent, I was actually had a high anxiety about that. The idea of someone from the professional world of publishing, of, of writing, uh, reading my work uh, made my heart palpitate. So, yeah, to, to see it be received as well as it has been has been a, an absolute surprise and a, and a relief. <laughs> <laughs> So I have a question for you. This is this is something I've been kind of toying around with the last uh, day or two. Why do you? I mean, you've had a very unique perspective. Of it. Why do you think the show became a, the blockbuster that it is? Yeah, I think about that a lot, and you know, there are some easy answers to that, which are you know, I mean, it's got amazing choreography, amazing writing, right? The music is incredible, but I also feel that there is some alchemical magic going on. You know, you, you just, these elements are brought together in such a way that it is causing a reaction in people that I don't know we can put our finger on precisely. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you see this, especially with younger people. There are kids like eight, nine, you know, 10 years old who come in and they're crying. They're crying. As soon as they enter the lobby, they're just so excited mm -hmm. to be at Hamilton. And, and I don't even know, at eight years old, do you even really fully understand what's going on, you know, <laughs> as far as the story goes of Hamilton and all of that? And yet they're so moved by it that it makes me feel like there's something otherworldly about it. Like it's some some reflection from some deeper place or higher place or something uh, that we don't have access to every day that is sort of breaking through in some ways through through Hamilton. So, um, yeah, I don't know that you can, I mean, but, but in simple terms, Lynn is a G Lynn Manuel who wrote it is a genius. His ability to use rhythm and words is just one of a kind, absolutely once in a generation sort of a ability.
I put it out there that you were going to be on the show and some people wrote in some questions. And one of them, and I, I love this one the most, uh, the fan favorite of the musical is King George for some reason. Do you find mm. humor in that with him being the villain of the story? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the first night that I, I saw the show, um, the, the very first time that I saw the show, I was a completely blank slate. I knew nothing about it. And when he came out, uh, when Jonathan Groff, who initially played it at, on Broadway, uh, came out and started singing it. First of all, it's a surprise because it's a different, uh, you know, it's different musically than the show had been up until that point. And it's just, I think, this brilliant move on Lynn's part to to turn uh, George into this this character, this sort of, uh, you know, lovelorn, uh, like spurned lover mm-hmm. character. And um, yeah, I mean, I we were I was laughing hysterically the first time that I saw that. I have a place I like to go eat at. It's a little British pub here and where I live. And I'm in there a couple of weeks ago. You know, the thing, the, the pandemic, things are opening up again. And I've had my you know, vaccine. And anyway, I went to have lunch there. And in this British pub, they're playing Hamilton. And I'm oh, sitting wow. there like, <laughs> the irony in this is just beautiful. And I didn't want to say anything, obviously, because, you know, I didn't want to be rude. But I thought it was just hilarious. I'm in this British pub. You know, there are British patrons there. And they're all just having a great old time listening to Hamilton. I'm like, you do understand <laughs> what this is about, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I think I think enough time has passed that, that now we can... <laughs> We yeah. can we can laugh at it together. It's very yeah. popular in in the West End too. I it mean, is, yes, hugely popular. Yes, it is. So, just to get folks who haven't yet picked up the book, can you give a teaser about some of the interactions you've had with some of the most famous celebrities on the planet? Yeah, the, yeah, there are some you know fun fun stories in there. Uh, probably the the one that was most effective to me is meeting Obama, Barack Obama, who came. To oh my wow! Show. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, you know, to be in a the same room with him was, and it was, and there were not a lot of people there, you know, it was very, it was just his, his some of his security detail because the room that they were holding him in was the ice room is for our bar, um, that was sort of the safe safe room that they had set up, and so I was I was there with just him and and a few people and and listening to him talk to these people with no cameras, you know, nary a camera anywhere, no microphones anywhere. He's just completely being himself. And, and he was just so warm and funny. Um, and, uh, just, you know, he's, he's just a real human being and a real down to earth guy. You know, that was, that was a, a stunning moment for me. Um, but you know, Hamilton, of course, especially in that first year, everyone came to see the show. So, you know, Prince was there, you know, Beyonce, I mean, really just, just absolutely, um, you you could name almost anyone and they had, they've been to, to see the show, but meeting Obama was for me, uh, probably the highlight. That's awesome. He is a dream guest of mine. I know it'll probably never happen, but yeah, I, I would love to just the opportunity to meet um, uh, uh, Barack Obama. I think he would be just an Im- incredible person to be in the same room with. So I, uh, I have to ask, what is your favorite part of the musical or song? Uh, my my favorite, well, let's see. So my favorite song is is Helpless. That was mm-hmm. that. That's my favorite. But the part that almost killed me, that got me emotionally the most. Uh, which, uh, this, you know, again, this is the very first time that I've seen it, and I did not know the story, you know, the true story of Hamilton and Eliza, his wife. I, did, I was not aware of the history. 
and learning about um, you know the affair and everything. And then in the in the number uptown, it's quiet uptown when um, she forgives him. There there is this amazing moment on stage uh, where the, the whole cast is in the background and she she takes his hand and they say forgiveness. Uh, it's just because they had just lost a child. Um, it's it's un- unbelievably powerful moment. And then also the very end of the show, when when you learn about um, what happened with Eliza, how she lived another 50 years after he passed. She spent the rest of her life as an abolitionist, trying to trying to get you know trying trying to end slavery. Uh, she started an orphanage. Um, so that very the last uh, two minutes of the show, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to because I don't watch the show much anymore except for the end. I'll often go in for the last two minutes and not actually watch the show. I turn around and I watch the audience because I I just love seeing all of the you know hankies coming out and, and mm-hmm. people dabbing their eyes in those last moments. Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a little bit of a break. This, of course, gives you a chance to refresh your drink, use the bathroom, or do some of those deep breathing exercises, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Listen to these promotional ads on a spotlight on two friends of the show, and then we'll be right back with the conclusion of this episode. Hey everyone, I'm Michelle. And I'm Tom. And we are Apocalypse in Review. We're a comedic podcast that rates and reviews movies in the apocalypse genre. We run a synopsis, play some games, and also have commentary from us watching the movie. (gasps) Dun dun dun. Ah, he did. If you enjoy movies and lighthearted podcasts, come check us out on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot co. And be sure to add the Derek Duvall Show in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of your application. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Hey there, Duvall Nation. Welcome back to the Derek Duvall Show. Did you do your required breathing exercises? You know why I encourage these? Because we here at the Derek Duvall Show, we care. Okay, let's get right back into it. Here is the conclusion of our interview with the author of Life at Hamilton. Sometimes you throw away your shot only to find your story. Mr. Mike Anthony. So what was your thought on the film version? Have you seen it? I have, yeah. I think, you know, it's really hard to capture 
theater, live theater in, in any other way than, than being in the room there, right? I mean, that's theater is its own medium and it's meant to be experienced live and together in a room. But that said, I thought they did a really fantastic job with the, with the Disney plus version. There, there are some parts of it that are even, um, a little more interesting because you're getting to see Tommy Kale, who is the director of Hamilton, also directed uh, or helped direct anyway the Disney Plus version. So you're getting to see when you watch that the way that he uses the close-ups in certain moments. You're getting to see Hamilton through Tommy's eyes a bit. You know the moments that he thought were important enough to really focus on, so that the camera comes in close. Because uh, when you're seeing a show on Broadway, of course you know, the stage is big and there's so much going on and you can miss easily miss things if you're looking at one side of the stage and not the other. So in that sense, the Disney Plus version, I think is really fascinating because you're getting a sense of um, what the what the creative team felt was, was important to highlight. Mm. Has any of the cast reached out to you about the book that you wrote? Yeah, well, I mean, the main one is Lynn, which was, you know, extraordinary. I, I wanted to sort of just get his blessing before I did this. You know, the, mm-hmm. the title of the book has has his show's name in it. So uh, I didn't want to publish it without at least just giving him a heads up. And and I wrote to him not knowing if he'd even know who, who I was. You know, I, I I've he, he knows me by face because I also work at the Rogers for uh, in the Heights. So I've, you know, quote unquote, known Lynn for like 15 years, but the conversations we've had are always fast. They're, they're short. Um, and we've had many over the years, but they're just, you know, they're very quick, uh, conversations. So I didn't even know if he would know my name. So I, I, I sent him an email, not even expecting a response. Uh, and he immediately wrote back and I said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a, uh, a sample story if you like, if you'd like, like a representative story, so you can see what the tone of the book is going to be. And and he then wrote back asking for the whole book. He wanted to read the whole book. And at that point, as I mentioned, my anxiety before, my anxiety went through the roof. The idea of sending this book to a, a guy who is a, a linguistic genius. Um, I mean, I very quickly wanted to put on the brakes and, and I called the editor even, and I was like, listen, I, this might be a mistake. Lynn wants to read the whole book. I may, let's, maybe we shouldn't do this. But um, I did. I sent him the book and he could not have been kinder. He, you know, he gave me some notes on it. He was just, he, he could not have been a more supportive person. And to take the time out of his ridiculously busy schedule uh, to read this book, I was just absolutely blown away by that. So yeah, the, the the cast has been um incredible. Everyone's just been incredibly kind. So that bring you said you've been you've known him for over 15 years. What is your favorite interaction with him in all that time? Uh well, one that I that I write about in the book is our very first interaction. It was for in the heights and I was behind the bar cleaning things up and the show was not open yet. They were just in in pre in rehearsal uh and the first preview was going to be the next day. So this guy came up to the bar and he asked me for uh, a, a bunch of cups. He wanted the – at that time, we had just started doing the, the souvenir cups, you know, that have the show's logo on them, which mm-hmm. have now become a big thing on Broadway. Um, and he was asking for a bunch of them. And I had never seen this guy before. So I'm thinking he, he must be maybe with the merchandise company or maybe he's an usher or something. And I said, yeah, um, we don't have them yet, but, but I can get you some. You know, I'm like, do you, do you work here? And he said, uh, I'm, I'm with the show. Yeah, that was all that he said. I'm with the show. 
So I said, oh, okay, well then, yeah, come back in a couple of weeks and, and, and we'll have them printed by then. And then the next day, um, I'm sorry, it was actually that night, I think, I went into the theater when they were having the rehearsal. They were having the last run through uh, just to watch a bit. And the lights come up and there's that guy, the cup guy standing in the middle of the stage. Uh, and then I picked up a playbill and realized that guy, cup guy, is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And, and now if he writes an email to me, he signs it, cup guy. Cup guy. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a he's a really uh, special special guy. He's really kind. He, he's inclusive in a way that I'd not experienced before. Like he really wants the house staff to feel as like they are part of the show. After after he won his, uh, you know, Hamilton won I think eleven Tonys, and two of them were for Lynn personally. The day after the Tony Awards, he came in with his two Tonys put them down on my bar and said, I just want to leave these here in case any of the, uh, you know, any of the front of house staff wants to take pictures with, with them. And then he left leaving his two Tonys there in the, in the lobby for everyone to take pictures with. And that's never happened in all the years and all the shows I've worked. Uh, no one, no one has ever done something like that before. I see. I like to hear stuff like that. I've, I've done this job now, this, this show long enough to know that there's some people out there who you don't have very good, um, you know, you hear, you hear bad things about, but hearing stuff like that just warms mm -hmm. your heart because like you said, this is someone that people look up to and idolize. And stuff like that. So to hear that he's actually this fantastic, warm human being, just, it just, it just paints a better picture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most people, I would say, you know, it's hard to live up to that public sort of facade that we see. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people don't, but he, he's one of the people that, that really does. I do want to ask you about your other project, which piqued my interest when I was doing my research about you, and that's Love Dad. Can you tell us about it? Because I'm not going to lie to you, I was fascinated. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, th this was the most um, life-changing experience of my life. It, it, it happened after my dad passed. Um, as I said earlier, though though I'm a bartender and actor initially, I had planned to be a science teacher, and, and I've always loved science. And Science, mainstream science anyway, is very clear. They're very unequivocal about what happens after we die. And that is nothing, right? According to mainstream science, consciousness is created by the brain. And when the brain uh, stops getting oxygen and those re chemical reactions and electrical impulses stop being sent, um, that's, that's the end of the story. But when my dad died, things began to happen that I simply could not explain uh, in any way. And it ended up, they were so profound that it, it ended up taking over um, all of my, my mental energy. And I spent uh, basically the last decade just about investigating evidence for the possibility that consciousness is something that is separate from the brain and might survive the death of that brain. And the evidence is astounding. It's astounding. Uh, and that's what the book is about. I, by the end, I had an experience. Um, that completely uh, upended my sense of reality. And it, it was an experience that happened. You know, it was black and white. There was no interpretation about this. Uh, it either happened or it did not happen or it did not happen and it did happen. So, um, and when it happened, by the way, I was sitting beside a, a journalist for the New York Times happened to be with me and she has written about this herself. Um, and I say that only because somebody, you know, a journalist for the times has to be very careful about what they publish because the, the times, you know, does not mess around. So, so that's just to say that, you know, it, 
it definitely happened and it completely changed my my sense of what life and death are and it let me know that that science it has so much left to learn and no matter how intelligent a, a scientist might be no matter how many uh, Nobel prizes might be sitting on their shelf if if they say there's absolutely no evidence for life after death uh, they just are not aware of the of the whole story. They're not aware of all of the information that's out there. And and some of this my story is told in a Netflix series called Surviving Death. And that's that's a, it's a six part series that's available now. Mm. We've had another medium on the show um, very recently, actually, and she was just fantastic. What are your takes on the ability to communicate with the afterlife? I have seen it. I have seen it with my own eyes now. I, I ended up doing experiments with a medium where I, I started to make a documentary. And I said to this woman, you know, I want to test. I want to see if you can do what you claim you do uh, when I know there's no way you can be cheating. So I want to sit you in front of a camera, hit record, and then I want to walk complete strangers into the room and see if you can do readings for them one after the other. And I've, I've now filmed her doing 20, over 20 readings. In every single one of those readings, something has happened that has convinced the person that she was doing something they could not explain. And some of those 20 people, by the way, were on the extremely skeptical end of the spectrum uh, when they came into the experiment. So I've seen it with my own eyes now. And, and you don't have to take uh, you know my word, a bartender's word for it. There are also <laughs> fantastic uh, scientific studies being done at the University of Virginia, the University of Arizona, the Winbridge Research Center right now with a woman named Dr. Julie Beichel. And that evidence is also showing that the, some people are able to get information in some anomalous way, the pathway for which science has yet to to understand. Yeah, that's that's very deep. I mean, like I said, it's there there is skepticism but you know if you can anything can be overcome with with uh, seeing is believing you know yeah i mean and skepticism there should be I, you know i also should say that there there definitely are people claiming the ability to speak to dead people that i don't think are doing it you know there there are people who have either uh, fooled themselves maybe into thinking they're doing something that it doesn't appear that they actually are and then of course there have been people just caught red-handed cheating, you know, outright mm -hmm. cheating. Um, so that does happen. So it's definitely important to remain skeptical. And that's my, the book that I wrote is, is meant for people who might be on the skeptical end of the spectrum um, because I really bring you through what happened and try, try to make clear that my skeptical, you know, receptor was wide open and, and, and I was paying incredibly close attention to everything that was going on and um, really nitpicking everything. So uh, yeah, I, you, but just because there are people out there who, who are cheating does not mean that everyone is cheating. And um, I have now seen it again with my own eyes. I, I, I now uh, have no doubt that there are people who do have whatever this ability is, they have it. Okay, so circling back to Broadway real quick, are you excited to see the film version of In the Heights? I'm so excited. I am. I mean, this is a different different thing than the uh, Hamilton, obviously, which is actually, you know, uh, filming just the live show. Uh, this is a full out, you know, Hollywood uh, film version. But yeah, I, In the Heights, I absolutely loved that show. I absolutely. And this is sort of blasphemous to say, Derek, but but uh, but between you and I, I have a hard time saying which which I like better, In the Heights or Hamilton. I, I like <laughs> In the Heights 
that much. So yeah, I'm, I am, I'm very excited to see, uh, and Anthony Ramos, who is, a, uh, who's a friend of mine, he plays Usnavi, the lead role. And, and I think he's going to be just great. So yeah, really looking forward to that. Awesome. So after the pandemic is over and the theaters reopen, uh, what are your future plans? Oh, well, I, I'm going back to Hamilton and I just cannot wait. I mean, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be the most electric night of theater that I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, I think, you know, we, people like you and I, uh, and a lot of people, we appreciate theater, but it's easy for us to start to take things for granted, right? I mean, that's just sort of the human way. We, we get very easily accustomed to, to whatever the circumstances are even if they're extraordinary. And I got accustomed to being in, on Broadway every night and, and being able to listen to these world-class voices every night. I think that on that very first night back, when we're all in the room together, our gratitude scale is going to have been recalibrated by this crazy year and a half. And I think it's just going to be uh, a, one, a once in a lifetime sort of an experience that's going to really remind us of what a special thing it is to have a 1300 strangers in a room together, experience a make-believe show together, laugh and cry together, and then in a sense, be strangers no more. So I just can't say, I can't express enough how extraordinary it's going to be and how deeply I, I just can't wait to be back. Have they given you an ETA on when that might be? Yeah, September 14th for Hamilton. Um, and then uh, Wicked and The Lion King also on September 14th. But another show is opening August 4th. And it's possible some of these shows might move their dates up too. If, if the trends continue to go in the right direction, you know, if the vaccination rates keep going up and the rates of infection keep going down that it, it might change that we actually even get to open up earlier but mm. at the very latest uh september 14th that's awesome all right so i end my interviews with my absolutely favorite question and that is if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast what would be the one thing that you would like to say to the people of earth oh man wow that's a bit that's a big question derek okay the the one the thing that I've learned throughout all of my experiences, and this includes, I think, working on Broadway and all of my my investigations into life after death and, and consciousness, is that human beings are way more powerful than we realize that we are. Uh, we go through our lives every single day carrying an enormous ability to change how the universe feels to everyone that we come into contact with. Just being in a room with someone who is feeling optimistic, for instance, alters the, the, the brain and heart waves of the people that you're in the room with. And, and we know this scientifically now. We know that uh, hearts and brains give off uh, a field, an electromagnetic field, and that if you and I were in a room together, my brain would be registering your heart activity and your heart would be registering my brain activity. And they affect each other and they start to come into coherence, what's called coherence, and they, and they can change each other. So you just, and it doesn't have to, it doesn't take a lot. You, you go to Starbucks and you get your, your latte, uh, just your energy while you're taking your coffee from the, the young guy behind the, you know, your barista handing you your coffee, just, just being positive 
in that interaction uh, can change that person's day and can then change how he speaks maybe to the guy behind you in line. So I guess that's the thing I would say to people on earth, that, that we have a tremendous power within us to make the world a better place. We can absolutely literally make the world a better place. I see. I like that's actually one of the best answers I've had yet. That's that's really good. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Mike, can you tell us where your fans can find you on social media? Yeah, uh, everything is on uh, mikeanthony.com. Uh, that's the website, and that you can find me on uh, through Facebook and uh, Instagram as well. And those links are on the website. Um, and there are some uh, videos on the website as well that that depict a little bit of the documentary I was talking about where we tested that medium so you can watch some of the videos there as well and the books are available on uh, amazon.com yeah I was about to say the same thing that you can buy them on your website amazon or wherever you know people buy their books so that's awesome Mike thanks ever so much for coming on the show this has been fantastic I can't wait for my fans and fans of the musical to hear it this has been great it's been a real pleasure thanks so much for having me Derek you're welcome Okay, Duvall Nation, that brings us to the end of episode 19 of The Derek Duvall Show. What an incredible episode this has been. I want to thank Mike Anthony for taking the time to come on the show and speak with us about his amazing book. As stated before, you can find a copy of it on Amazon or wherever you buy your books online. We will also be posting a link on our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. We have some really cool stuff in the works, and we cannot wait to show you, so stay tuned for another great episode coming soon. Trust me, I got some great, great stuff in the works. I want to give a shout out to the Welsh national football team on their amazing campaign in the Euro 2020. We came up short against Denmark, but Wales is now on international football's radar now. Also, Denmark, after that game, you just see if I ever buy your butter cookies again. Hopefully, we'll be right back up and running with the replacement PC on its way to us. It's been an absolute nightmare here at Duval Studios, as you can imagine, but I can only say one thing, and that is thank God for Google Drive. So on behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, we say, be safe, be well, and if you haven't already, get the COVID-19 vaccine, do your part so that we can finally get back to normal things like, oh, I don't know, going to Broadway and seeing amazing shows like Hamilton. I want to end this episode with this amazing quote from Conan O'Brien that he said in the final moments of his tenure on The Tonight Show, and it goes like this. Don't be cynical. Nobody gets everything they want, but if you work hard and you're kind, amazing things will happen. I leave you with that. Nosta, God bless, and see you next time, planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show. And we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.